Is it always doomerism to say, maybe we're too late? Do people who come from an activist movement tradition just think climate tech is false consciousness, a stage of bargaining after denial and anger and before acceptance of climate collapse, that we've drunk the Kool-Aid or some other liquid? I have found climate tech folks to be on average rather magical thinking and rainbow unicorn piss types to some degree. Uh, rainbow unicorn piss being the magical fuel that will drive all of green industrialization. This is Wicked Problems. I'm Richard Delavan. Martin Luther King Jr. said that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Once you factor in reaching planetary boundaries, then the moral arc of history is short and bends towards fascism. I don't know if you're a, a sci-fi fan, mm. right? Yeah. But this sounds an awful lot to me like Harry Seldon telling me about the foundation <laughs> and how we're going to shorten the dark age. There's a vanguard of elite thinkers who can somehow preserve what's good. Therefore, that's a that's a rough method for salvation. Okay, first of all, you're good. That was that was, that was well played. I stopped arguing with people on the internet a long time ago. But occasionally you do see an argument and you stop scrolling. But I don't wade in anymore. If it's two smart people of good faith having at it, it's tempting, but usually people fail to live up to the rule. Not Godwin's law where whoever invokes Hitler first loses, but the Slugger O'Toole rule, violation of which was pretty much the only thing that got you banned from Mick Fealty's website, which was one of the only places on the internet that attracted people from both nationalist and unionist traditions in Northern Ireland for a couple of decades, and it's still going. And that rule was, play the ball, not the man. When I saw Keetan Joshi, a previous guest on this show, having it out on Blue Sky, with Dr. Tajio Muller, a political scientist and activist who argues for something called just collapse. It sounded like something radically different from even what you hear from degrowth types. It got me remembering watching someone from Extinction Rebellion take the stage at the Business Green Net Zero Festival last year. Billions of tons of plastic, billions of, millions of tons of CO2 every single year. This platform enables Coca-Cola things like that and to pretend that they have a real transition to net zero by sponsoring this festival it enables their greenwashing anyway sorry sir thank you thank you no honestly, honestly we're fine um thank you for making your point we're not really fine are we you're the biggest going plastic loser so we're not respect there are different views on how to manage this transition. We have people on platforms throughout the day that are from the activist movement, the protest movement, as well as people from the business community. We're trying to have an open and honest debate in good faith. Thank you, Edward, for your perspective. Excuse me, sir, I just would like to continue the session. I've been thinking since then, what's the relationship between activists and climate tech? What should it be? Should it be adversarial? Folks lobbying for Exxon or shouting on right-wing cable news would certainly celebrate that. Or, to borrow a term from left-wing movements past, if climate-denying fascists are a common enemy, is there a popular front approach that could bring those people together? And what does just collapse mean? So Taggio agreed to chat, and I have to warn you, the chat gets pretty raw and pretty personal. Not shouty, not gotcha. I saw an interviewer recently think they were being clever for sucker-punching Hannah Ritchie with the implication that Bill Gates and Elon Musk were causing her work to be biased somehow, and I'm still cross about that. I really wanted to understand 
where Dr. Mueller was coming from and respect the fact that he's stared into the abyss of potential climate collapse and has come away with the scars to prove it. It's not a short chat. And if he hadn't been able to tell a longer version of the story, I don't think I would have found out how much we agree on and how, while I might not be the best company to go clubbing with him in Berlin, I could happily spend an evening swapping ideas and stories over a couple bottles of decent red. We cover everything from adaptation to LNG to crises of faith and Isaac Asimov's foundation. So settle in, maybe pour yourself a glass, and enjoy. Well, welcome back to Wicked Problems. I'm so delighted that Tagio Mueller could join us. Dr. Mueller has a PhD from the University of Sussex, has been an activist and thinker on climate issues as well as LGBT issues for many years. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. And we started out this conversation on Blue Sky, uh, where I, I think you'd had a, uh, I don't know if it was just, a, just a, a, a grumpy morning or you were having a particularly pretty fierce kind of back and forth with Ketan Joshi, who has been- we're a- both people who take no quarter uh, and, and, and give no quarter, if give no quarter in discussions. And I think we basically just went sort of straight head to head and maybe kind of misread each other a little bit, but. Well, I think that's, that's, that's a good generosity of spirit to come to that with. I think that people who have passionate views or well-informed um, sometimes, you know, make the most interesting conflicts. So I won't claim to be as intellectually um, grounded in all this stuff as you do. So it was interesting to watch. And I just thought it'd be interesting to explore uh, some of the things that you'd raised in that conversation, which I know was, was a few weeks ago now. So I'm not going to ask you to rehash everything you said then. But I think that one of the things that your arc has been that you were arrested, as I understand it, at the COP in Copenhagen in, in 2009. 20, 2009, yes. yes. yes, yes. Um, and so uh, tell us a little bit about, you know, how you came to be passionate enough to be arrested at that point and your journey and how it's taken you to something called Just Collapse okay. in, in brief. So in brief, I used to be an alter-globalization activist. The, the movement that politicized me were the summit protests. I was in Seattle in 99. Went on to Prague, skipped Gen- was in Gothenburg, skipped Genoa for um, arrest-related reasons, um, and uh, and then again later in the in the in the sort of dying years of the movement, I was still went to all the summit protests, right. uh, Avion two thousand three, Glen Eagles two thousand five, and Heiligenheim two thousand seven. Now this was an attempt to leverage global summits, given the weak, what I call globality, the weak capacity of global justice movements to generate effects at the global level. I call this globality. This was very, very weakly developed in, 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 in uh, sort of post-Cold War left movements. And we essentially said, let's, uh, let's kind of hijack the summits of the powerful to use their infrastructure of power in the media space to leverage our very limited power to have significant justice effects at the global scale, right? That was the, in short, the strategy of the alter-globalization movement. Now, on the one hand, those protests failed after 9-11, but a few years later, neoliberalism as a hegemonic project also sort of failed. And those global summits, due to a weakening of multilateral, well, essentially weakening of US hegemony, to be perfectly frank, um, those summits became less and less important. Then... I was kind of looking for a new issue because the movement that I was thinking with had died and I'm a movement thinker. So I was looking for a new movement, which is also a new issue and a new job, which are all the same thing. And I found that in the UK where I'd done my PhD, a bunch of my comrades had started 
to look more at the climate issue again. Now, there's a strong tradition of radical environmentalism in the UK, which fed into the alter globalization movement. In Germany, that's very different. Environmental issues since the 1980s, since the Greens kind of separated from the societal left, environmental issues have been seen as luxury issues being about megafauna, uh, like polar bears and the like. So I had a certain certain kind of disregard, a German leftist disregard for environmental issues, then found the climate issue, started reading and teaching about this at a university in, in, in Germany, and was stunned at the fact that I'd like found the new kind of global justice, the new significant global justice issue. Because for those who don't know it, I'll just say, say this again, those who contribute most to the climate crisis, uh, on average, suffer least from it. And those who contribute least suffer most from it. This is the key kind of justice problem in the climate crisis, and therefore it's not just about bloody polar bears. And I won't say my specific position about polar bears. I've gotten into some hot water about that. But basically, never mind the polar bears at this point. Uh, we've got really important justice to focus on. One additional problem. I found out that environmental issues, global environmental issues, work differently than other traditional leftist issues, where we can just, well... Martin Luther King Jr. said that the moral arc of the universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Once you factor in reaching planetary boundaries, then the moral arc of history is short and bends towards fascism. Essentially, once you look at environmental issues, you can't just use those leftist commonplaces that involve things like productive failure, where we just keep losing and losing and losing until at some point we win somehow. This fundamental idea of leftism that because it's about people and their struggles for a better world, we can just afford to lose and be irrelevant and stupid and make strategically absolutely moronic decisions because at some point we'll win. The march of history is going to lead us to victory, right? So those are just, the, that was the stuff I was struggling with. I was looking at the climate issue. I was like, fuck, this issue is being produced around the world everywhere when we engage in any type of interaction within fossil capitalism. So I'm going to try and do what we did in Seattle. Go organize a big summit protest Thus, kickstarting kind of both the global movement, Naomi Klein famously called Seattle the coming out party of the auto-globalization movement, mm -hmm. and kind of leverage our limited power to get some type of decent global regulation going. So this was already a kind of essentially, that was magical thinking, as I would later come to understand. But for the time being, I just did what most activists do. I try to recreate my own political glory days, the moment when you were politicized, for me, the Seattle protests. Mm -hmm. I tried to repeat that in the climate issue. Right. I, I organized with many others um, big disobedient actions, and I became a sort of leader in that mobilization, the term that in German is so contested that I had to put it into air quotes right now, but then I realized it's a podcast and air quotes don't help me. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway, I became a leader in that mobilization and the Danish police um, decided that um, it would be better to arrest me preemptively and keep me in jail until mm. after the action because they figured I was so rapidly dangerous, which right. is really not. <laughs> really more of a talker than anything else. <laughs> Okay. So, I mean, it's, that's interesting. So it's something that you were kind of chasing the dragon, kind of trying to recover that, uh, that feeling from 99, where yeah. you're a young activist who's out there on the streets and feeling good about things. So, and then here we are, it's 2009 and you're, you're preemptively arrested. But at this point, your activism, again, you're recognizing that we're on a clock and mm. that makes it fundamentally different from previous mm. left of, leftist activism. Mm -hmm. But then what's changed? So 2009, we're now 14, 15 years later. And so you've think, come. Yeah. 
So think of me as a movement strategist, not the only one, but just one of the people who tries to think about where to go now, where we can, again, leverage our limited power to achieve massive effects in a very limited time scale. Right. After we realized that those summits were a complete washout, I mean, not only did our mobilization flop, so did the, the, the governmental mobilization, as it were, um, didn't come up with anything significant. So after, so we tried different points of leverage from then on. After Copenhagen, most of the global climate movement, or the northern climate movement, said, okay, we can't focus on these summits anymore. We need to, particularly the radical parts of the movement, we need to focus on where climate chaos is produced. So we would go into the industrial and coal regions of our countries. Right. There, we encountered not only the implacable opposition of the workers in those sectors, understandably, we say we need to shut down your jobs. They say, oh, maybe we don't even like our jobs, but we fucking need our jobs. Many of them also do have a strong identitarian connection to their own jobs. Now, I don't mean this in any critical way. Just, uh, if you're a coal worker, this constitutes a significant part of your culture, your history, your identity, probably your family story, right? So we encountered not only that opposition, we also encountered a general ignorance of the topic, a general mm. lack of awareness that every time something like, say, the Katrina hurricane or the Copenhagen summit pushed forward awareness of the climate crisis, either something else would happen, like the euro crisis, or mm. people would just forget. So climate was a significant issue already in, in 2009, and in 2011, nobody gave a fuck about it anymore. Yeah. Right. So we encountered ignorance and massive opposition. Then, um, a few years later, the Paris the run-up to the Paris Agreement, 2015, kind mm -hmm. of opened up political space where we uh, kind of, with that we leveraged to get more participation. We were like two to 400 people at our actions until then, right? So that didn't really work. Then we managed to get bigger protests going in that, in that space where essentially the governments had said, the governments of the world had said, okay, climate is a big problem and we're going to solve it. And then obviously did nothing to solve it. And that kind of energized the climate movement that tried to, Tried to see, that tried to copy the theory of change of the German anti-nuclear movement. Reference why that's important. German anti-nuclear movement is the only anti-nuclear movement in a significant industrial power that managed to fight for and achieve a nuclear phase-out after Fukushima. Right? Mm -hmm. So this is the nuclear phase-out is a situation where a movement from below against government and economic elites managed to impose its will on the energy sector. On the, mm -hmm. And energy policy is a policy field traditionally totally reserved for elites. There is, there is to be no popular, it's like foreign policy, right? There is to be no plebeian participation in energy policy. That shit's right. important for, for governments, for armies, for, 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 for yeah. all, all factions of capital, right? Mm -hmm. Stay out, little people. We managed, this is a global first, to impose our will on the energy policy of a significant industrial power. So since our goal now as climate activists was to kick fossil fuels out of the energy system, that was basically our, our strategy. Mm -hmm. um, we tried to leverage, we tried to copy the, the strategy of the anti-nuclear movement, which basically goes like this. A movement, a protest movement, let's say a few thousand well-organized country, organize uh, significant disobedient actions while the more moderate wing of the movement organizes big protests. Those create a media space in which we can change popular opinion over time. And then under, say, pressure of, an external catastrophe, Fukushima or a climate-related catastrophe, the government would choose a position that would accord with the societal majority position that one should protect the climate. Like, that was the idea. Right. However, um, as it turned out, we managed to shift societal opinion towards a majority saying, yes, we need more rapid climate protection. We need to get a more rapid coal phase out in Germany. Right. 
And yet, although we had about 75% of society by the end of the, 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 the teens, we had 75% of society sort of organized for, or in, in favor of more climate protection and a rapid coal phase out. <clears throat> what we in the end got was a coal phase out, again, parenthesis, Germany as a world champion, not in producing renewable energy, Uruguay, Morocco, Denmark are way ahead of us, um, but world champion in burning lignite, the dirtiest of all the fossil fuels, soft brown coal. Okay, so after years of struggle, after 10 years of struggling in the coal regions and at the national level, we got a coal phase out in 2038. That was 20, that was like from, in 2018, Germany, one of the richest countries in the world, decided to get out of the climate destroying soft coal business only 20 years from then on. That was when the world was already burning in 2018. Mm -hmm. But incidentally, that was the high point of our power. From then on, everything we tried would deliver reduced effects. Mass, we organized the biggest, Fridays for Future organized the biggest protests ever in the Federal mm -hmm. Republic of Germany. Right. No effect on actual government policy. Nothing we did actually shifted policy. We had shifted opinion. We had shifted majorities. We had brought millions of people to the street and nothing shifted actual mm -hmm. policy. I came to understand that what people feel that they want in terms of a more climate protection is totally irrelevant compared to, well, the capitalist system's innate drive towards continuous growth. Because if you look at global emissions rates and global emissions concentrations, the only thing that accurately predicts that is economic, global economic growth. When you have global economic growth, global emissions rise. When right. you don't have growth, global emissions don't rise. Fact. So Nothing else matters. So I, I can guess what you're going to say, but I'm, I'm going to ask you to go in there anyway. This podcast is really about and for climate tech, right? Right. so solutions. Yeah. yeah. And so we take a particular kind of POV on this. So I'd like to hear your thoughts before we get back to your narrative on mm -hmm. the, this, the claim you've just made about that the, the only provable link between growth is that we all have a, you know, this corresponding relationship with increasing emissions. Now, people would say, and various analyses disagree on this. Um, again, you could say that only the ones that you agree with are, are correct. Um, but there is mixed data that suggests that it's possible to have a delinking of emissions growth to economic growth. Um, you're going to tell me why I'm wrong or mm. why the people who say that are wrong. But uh, I just want to hear hear, mm. the, hear you respond <clears throat> to that point of view. So the traditional response from, let's say, green, green economy types, so people who believe that green growth is possible or green new dealers, is that, yes, historically, Tadja, what you say is true. It's always been growth that has driven emissions, but we can uncouple, de or we can decouple, so decouple emissions from growth. Now, the data that they, they will then put forward is almost always national level data. They never show global data. And obviously, we're talking about one atmosphere. So therefore, and the global capitalist system where production chains are global, where production can be outsourced if it's dirty, right? So the only metric that really matters is global emissions. But even mm -hmm. if we look at the national emissions or the national decoupling instances that they point to, you can always show how those are really more the result of industrial offshoring, that is to say, sort of uh, pushing dirty industries out of the country, mm -hmm. than they are of actual climate policy. Generally speaking, I found no convincing evidence of actual decoupling because you have to think about it that now on some level, it's it, it seems obvious if you say, well, we're going to have more production of electric cars, mm. they, will, they will put out fewer emissions <clears throat> and that will be economic growth. That's not so emissions intense. But if you look at the global production chain, 
of an electric car. And if you think about how, if you radicalize production of electric vehicles or so-called electric, electric capitalist technologies, which used to be called green technologies, then you have to imagine that the whole global capitalist system would have to kind of ramp itself up, right? An expansion of production of electric vehicles, stick with that, would require a global radicalization of production processes, would require more mining around the world, would require more shipping around the world, more transporting goods by plane, etc. and so forth. The whole idea of having a capitalist efficiency revolution that produces fewer emissions negates the fact that if you have more electric capitalism, you will also have, for, the sh- for at least the short to medium term, have more fossil, you burn more fossil fuels in the transition towards an electric capitalist system. Mm-hmm. So then you have, of course, the, the question of the, the rebound effect. Ultimately, a rebound effect, which is to say that in capitalism, efficiency gains aren't, don't lead to reduced production, but actually to more production. All of this is to say that the decoupling narrative is just another instance of magical thinking because it is weakly grounded in evidence, which is almost exclusively national, has no grounding in theoretical analysis, and simply expresses our desire to not have to change things that we can't change. We have not figured out, even as clever anti-capitalists, we have not figured out a way to stop this machine. So Mm -hmm. since we can't stop it, we have to imagine ourselves into a world where it can itself stop the problem that it has created. That's why people believe in decoupling, not because of the data, which is weak, unconvincing, and has never really shown that this is possible. Well, I'm not going to take us down this, this rabbit hole completely, and I'm going to let no. you light up there because uh, I understand. Um, so, but I think that we can park that for the moment, but I think you've, you've given your, your, the point of view on this, which I think is, a, from my point of view, a good representation of the counter argument. So let's get back to the narrative. Right. So you came to the conclusion that um, decoupling is, you know, basically you, you're the efficacy of the movement. I mean, many people talk about 2019 being this inflection point. Mm-hmm. We see the internal documents that have been leaked from Exxon uh, and BP, how they're terrified of, of Greta, yeah. they're terrified of Fridays for the Future. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Um, they think that we're at a, the, the cusp of something significant in terms of, of a 
a, a massive change that will result in a change in policy that'll be adversely affecting their bottom lines and their balance sheet. So what happened? And then how did that affect you? So the fundamental assumption that almost all environmentalists, including environmental justice types, have had that I know have been working on this is the following. Okay, let's say 10 years ago, we understood that the climate crisis won't affect folks in the global north the same way it does in the south. So therefore, we knew we were not going to get significant popular pressure towards climate just policies or even just climate protection policies. Once the climate crisis arrived in the global north, we thought we would get that. The German word is betroffenheit, being impacted by a problem. Once you are impacted by a problem, once you are betroffen, then you will act on it. That's the traditional rationalist assumption that once the costs of a particular situation increase, it seems more likely that people are going to change it, right? Right. Wrong. This is what we all assumed. Hmm. However, when in 2018, you have what's called the heat summer, like in 2003, a heat wave that killed tens of thousands of people in Europe. Um, I remember that in mid-April, right, I live in Berlin, which is in northern Germany. Um, northern Germany isn't famous for being a hot kind of dry climate. Now, in mid-April, the whole city of Berlin smelled like forest fire. And I remember being deeply, deeply shocked at almost like a molecular level. Um, you asked me later on when it comes to what things that have changed my mind that I've observed, shit like that, right? Like just getting out of my door in mid-April in a northern German city and the whole city smelling of forest fire. You're like, what the fuck? Right. Um, And you had this escalation of climate crisis effects. And while in 2019, that was part of our big mobilizations, later on in 2021, when a huge flood killed 200 people in Germany, which is something that was really shook the country, that did not in any way lead to increased pressure towards more climate policy. Because here's what I believe we got wrong. We assumed people behave rationally in the face of certain challenges, that they are capable of saying, okay, now the climate crisis is such a threat, even if it costs a lot to change our behavior, we understand that that's more rational than ignoring the costs that are going to come our way due to the climate crisis. But I believe that when faced with issues that generate significant guilt and shame, where it is too difficult to face the possibility of change, say, because in Germany, we can't become climate just because that would mean shutting down our car sector, which would mean depriving us of most of our wealth. So, actually, no, let me, let me start this point differently. You know that in the global north, we live in so-called externalization societies. We, we externalize the negative effects of our economic mode of production and mode of living onto others. Okay. So assume that every bit of externalization of violence, of oppression, of murder for capitalist exploitation um, generates an equal and corresponding quantum of guilt and shame in the subject doing the externalizing. Mm -hmm. That is to say, we are aware on on a subconscious level that we live on top of a global pyramid of, again, so violence, exploitation, and murder. This makes us feel shit because it doesn't actually accord with the values we like to or we believe we hold dear. Now, mm-hmm. obviously, terms like uh, cognitive dissonance become relevant here. But I believe shame and guilt are the key terms. We feel shame and guilt at this situation. Now, we can't change that situation because that would cost us too much in terms of changing, and not cost us too much in economic terms. It would cost us too much in, change, in terms of changing our everyday realities. Of It would just be too fucking difficult to change fossil capitalism away to, to, towards something more 
just less climate destructive. So mm-hmm. that makes us feel even more shit. And then we start ignoring the reasons that make us feel shit, that make us feel shamed, ashamed and guilty. This is in German, it's called Verdrängung. It's a psychoanalytical concept that can be best, that is bad, difficult to translate. Trans, uh, repression, sublimation are two translations. But basically it means pushing away knowledge that you don't want to have, pushing away right. knowledge that you want to ignore. So rather than, and a Verdrängung subject becomes an irrational subject because it will just do anything it can to further ignore what it wants to ignore. Mm. This is how we deal with the climate crisis, not as rational subjects, but as irrationalized, shameful subjects who feel shit about what they're doing, who feel shit that they're not changing it, and who feel shit that they're aware of all of this. Mm-hmm. And in this cycle, in this in this circle of shame, um, we stop behaving rationally and we cease to be able to behave ethically. Mm. So let's... For the sake of this discussion, right? Let's let's posit that as being yeah. accurate, and let's let's not uh, argue about the, the the priors there. So, but the conclusion to which you come from that. So, let's say that your psychological analysis at mass scale is correct, um, and that the quantum of shame that people experience or internalize leads them to this psychological mechanism of repression, uh, bedrangung. Am I saying that? Bedrangle. Okay. Yeah. Closer. Well, I'll, I'll I'll work on it. Anyway, in the meantime. What follows Um, follows is that how does that lead you to, first of all, let's to this thing called just collapse, which I suppose we have to then, what is that? I'm I'm sorry, I've been taking a a long circular detail. I've been trying to walk you through kind of strategic failures where we thought that all the levers we pulled didn't actually work. So if my analysis is correct, then more climate crisis will not lead to more rational policies on the issue, but will actually lead to more stupidity and irrationality and ultimately more fascism. fascism. Yeah. And so in a situation where society closes itself off to the climate narrative, which we can see around the global north with the responses to just stop oil, let's generation, etc. In a situation where society closes itself off against the climate agenda and against climate activism, which is really just an attempt to remind them of the climate problem, mm-hmm. there will be no climate protection policies. That's the first conclusion that I'm drawing. The climate protection agenda has completely failed, whether in movement or policy. And the second point, this is, of course, what imposed itself between 2018 and 2023, is a realization that climate collapse has started. Like when I talked to you about 2008 and realizing that we're on a clock, we have run out that clock, right? right? So basically, when I got involved in the climate justice movement, I got involved in order to contribute to stopping climate collapse. That was my goal. That was how we designed our strategies. And we have, so we have failed on the climate protection agenda in general, but specifically, we have failed to prevent this point to climate collapse. Climate collapse has begun. That is to say that the process whereby the global climate system transitions from a stable to an unstable state, which is just the general two states that complex systems have, that process has begun. It is irreversible. Climate collapse is happening. The tipping points, individual mm-hmm. tipping points have been passed, but the macro tipping point of the climate system has passed. And therefore, we need to readjust our strategy since the original goal has been missed. There's a third factor that is relevant for strategic reevaluation, and that is the rise of fascism, which I believe at this point nobody in the global north will say is not relevant. I suppose even centrists will will, will understand that by now. Um, I mean, the Trump dictate the second Trump uh, a second Trump term, a Trump dictatorship, is a perfectly likely outcome. Um, currently in Germany, we're going to have elections coming up this year where the fascist party is going to be by far the strongest. Um, and um, they've had some discussions with Nazi intellectuals recently about ejecting millions of folks with migration background from Germany, even those who have German passports. 
I, okay, so fascism is a real clear and present danger from India yeah. to, to Russia, from Brazil to the US and everywhere in between. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> these three elements, the climate protection agenda has failed. The climate is collapsing and fascism is a real and present danger, clear and present danger. Lead me to reevaluating or to saying that we need to reevaluate everything that we as a climate movement have been doing because it's failed. We've missed our goal and a new enemy has arisen. Okay. And which which leads me to the just collapse agenda, because now finally, I'm sorry, this has been a really long. But no, no, this is really good. This is really good. That long route is because I'm not. I'm an optimist by nature. I am a movement magic storyteller. I talk about. I was I was politicized in this tradition of movements can shift the the boundaries of the possible. The post situationist, post sixty eight left. That's me. I, movements are magical unicorn creatures that can change the world for the better and everything will be hunky-dory in the end. In a way, that was my maybe childish, but fundamentally deeply held belief about movement as right. the agent that improves the world. Now, what follows is the two, three-year depression. I don't need to talk about that. It just sucked to accept that. Then I understood, okay, if collapse is happening, this is the new situation. This is the new reality. What does collapse mean? It doesn't mean like Jim Ski or the IPCC said that everybody's going to die. Um, and Jim Ski said, okay, not everybody's going to die, but he referenced that idea that collapse means everybody's going to die. No, because as a human, as a subject, we live at the intersection of a number of systems and system collapse is a system term. That means the functionality of a system exists or it stops, it ceases to exist. That means that maybe our electricity systems will collapse or uh, certain production chains will collapse, um, that basically we will not have access to certain goods or services that we consider necessary, whether it's security, medical provisions, um, whether the internet is going to sort of collapse at some point or be stable or not. This is what collapse means. Collapse does not mean that everything is going to end. It just means that things that we have taken for granted will no longer be there when and if we want them and need mm -hmm. them. And this is going to be the new situation. Now, imagine that you have a neighborhood where there is no water and electricity. And that neighborhood is being contested by fascist and anti-fascist forces. In a situation where you have no water and electricity, two things that we absolutely need for survival, social agents will arise that will organize water and electricity for people because that's what always happens. In chaotic, catastrophic situations, networks or social networks will always try to fill the gap, gaps left by, say, state and market say there's a breakdown in state provision of security or health services. There's a market breakdown in terms of supplying electricity or food. Social networks will always arise to try and fill those gaps. They might not do so perfectly, but they will always arise. So a question, a political question within collapse is no longer can we prevent collapse? That question has been answered. But how do we respond to a collapse? Do we leave that space open to the fascists who have been preparing for this for years, not just with their guns, but also with provisions and networks that they've created. They know whom they're going to kill when collapse happens. We have no idea what we're going to do when collapse happens because we're magical thinking leftists who continue to deny the bleeding fucking obvious that this collapse is here and left being a leftist, being progressive at this point means organizing those networks where we're going to replace markets and state by in the provision of electricity, of health service and so on and so forth. We need to do that in a way that is solidaristic, universalist, and open. Because the fash are going to organize it precisely the opposite way. It's going to be electricity and water for Germans or for white people. Right? That's the reality of collapse and of politics within the collapse. Okay. I mean, and that is, A, terrifying. B, um, is something that 
I, I think that many people, I'm not going to ask you to talk about your personal experiences if you don't want to. I'm, um, I'm, happy, I'm happy to. I just didn't want to go off no, the no, just no, 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 I, I, no, no, but I think, I mean, I, I think the two are intertwined, mm. right? I think when you look at anybody who's, I mean, again, somebody who's coming at this from a very uh, kind of in, very much enmeshed in the capitalist system, Wolfgang Blau, mm-hmm. right, who works for one of the big advertising and media services conglomerates on the planet, gave a, gave a talk in, I want to say, October mm-hmm. in, at a conference uh, like somewhere in Italy. I forget now. But um, the point being, he's, his view is, I mean, he's basically, he sold a media company, um, took a little bit of time off, went to Oxford, um, and then studied deeply the climate science and then found himself in a mental health crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, other people who have done this, myself included, have found themselves experiencing a mental health crisis when they come to look across the, over the precipice as you did um, yeah. and see, oh God, we're fucked. It's a really, we are really fucked. And I guess the question is the response to that kind of realization um, is what's, I think, the, the differential. And I think we talked in the green room before this about Paul Kingsnorth, um, who the Dark Mountain movement back in, I guess, 07, 06, maybe even earlier, um, when he, again, a Booker Prize winning nominated writer, um, came to the conclusion that, yeah, we're fucked. And therefore, what should we do about that? And then I think he was one of the first, maybe not the first, but one of the first to coin this term, just collapse. Um, that I hadn't actually realized that it was a King's North term. Oh, I, again, I'm not, cl- I'm not saying he's the author of it, but definitely yeah, he I, seems I, to have been one of the people who popularized it back, at, back then in the first, one of the first ones. Um, and he's, he's been on a, a kind of really interesting intellectual journey himself since then. Um, and I'm not going to try to pop psychologize from my chair about what might have moved him in certain directions. But I think that what's interesting about that is that as we talked about in the green room, he's gone in a particular direction of embracing a uh, very deeply enmeshed in a particular faith, not even a faith he was brought up in, um, but one that seems to resonate with him living in a kind of a monastic community almost in the West of Ireland, Mm. um, where there, if you draw on that tradition, um, there are narrative arcs that humans have had really for quite a long time about what um, Solitaire Townsend, who I interviewed the other day, calls an earned dystopia, is this feeling that, you know what, we have done this to ourselves, to the shame that you talked about, and that the response to the shame is to imagine a world where we're just fucked, and we deserve it, and therefore we should just suffer. That's the just thing the universe demands of us as a... That's, of course, complete balderdash. Um, I'm, not, I, I'm not saying it's true. I'm no, saying, no, no, but I'm, no, I'm like, I'm, I'm saying, okay, but I'm going to drop because the just collapse agenda that I hold would yep. go very differently. Now, first of all, the important thing to understand is that this isn't the rational process of accept of, of understanding things. It is an emotional process of accepting things. Mm-hmm. So we're less in classical analytical territory. We're more in like pop psychology, Kubler-Ross stages of grief territory. Okay. The process that I went through can only be described, if not as following the, but as certainly being located in those five stages of grief, right? We've got denial, anger, uh, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And bargaining, like denial and anger, we both know these as part of the climate debate. But the entire climate policy debate can be seen as an instance of bargaining, right? Mm -hmm. Emissions trading, it's just like, all right, I've got cancer uh, because I've got lung cancer because I smoked and I'm just going to vape. Right. That's right. what emissions trading and, and electric cars are. It's like, we're just going to continue the same shit, but just a slightly different technology. It's still going to be shit. Now, 
this type of magical thinking, whether it's a technology that's going to save us or a movement that's going to save us, is something that every optimistic climate narrative has to entail. Every optimistic climate narrative, because again, the climate is collapsing and optimism has no place here, needs to imagine some type of element into which, in which it has faith mm-hmm. that can engineer transcendence, right? Transcendence being what's different from an imminent analysis. Now, when you lose faith in that agent of transcendence, it led for me to precisely, it was a crisis of faith. I was like a prelate, like a bishop holding a sermon because I was, you know, I'm quite, sounds vain, but I am, I, I do like the talking to the activists and I, I can give quite a decent speech. And so I imagined myself as like a sort of bishop on St. Peter's Square. And in the middle of a fucking sermon, I realized that I still believe in sin, but I've stopped believing in redemption. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And uh, this was a phrase that a conservative journalist handed to me, um, an ex-communist, by the way. And so it took me a long time. And I entered a sort of spiral where I took, I'm a gay party boy in Berlin. I took loads and loads of drugs, had loads and loads of sex, had loads and loads of fun, but obviously kind of fucked my mind and my body and my economy that way. Um, because I was trying to avoid facing a reality where there was no more transcendence, no more grace, no more faith because my faith had always been tied to the idea of victory, to the idea that movements can win the better world, right? Mm -hmm. And then something really remarkable happened. I went to Lutzerath, this tiny, tiny village in the west of Germany that was destroyed by diggers beginning of 2023 to make way for a coal pit. Now that that happens in Germany in 2023 is anyway just completely fucked. But basically the the comrades had occupied it a while before or tried to sort of fortify it as as a defendable place. Um, The... The, the coal company together with its state allies said, right, we're going to evict those activists. And last year, this became a sort of cause celebre. The entire German and European climate movement traveled there to defend this tiny village. And um, for me, it was a moment when I was at the sort of end. It ended my depression, mm-hmm. not because I, I went there and I understood. I began to understand something there. Oh, I, I experienced something there that I came to understand later because we didn't win. Although, we were hundreds of well-dug-in people. They evicted us. Although 35,000 people came to liberate the village. And I might get tears in my eyes because it was a really powerful moment for me. And all the, all the, all the houses were destroyed. Yeah. But I found my faith in movement again there. I remember just being so happy. I was crying when these young activists kind of, because I basically exited the climate movement. I'd said, fuck this, I'm done. And I said, return to the movement. And I understood that because basically the houses were torn down, why was I still, why was I filled with hope and, and, and renewed energy? Because I'd understood that being in movement isn't just about winning, it's about creating the social relations. But it's about, movement activity is about creating social relations that, that can improve the world, sometimes through policy effects, but at the most primal level, also just in those interactions. We create the better world, not by winning struggles, but by struggling together with others towards those victories. So even if we don't win, we still we win the policy success. We still win in the sense that we have created an instance of a better world, even if only for a moment. But generally speaking, those social relations last. They don't mm-hmm. disperse after you lose the fight. So mm-hmm. you win social relations, you win community, you win comrades, you win the possibility to create, even if only temporarily, what Hakim Bey called, used to call temporary autonomous zones spaces of warmth and light and love and solidarity, all things that are going to be quite scarce 
in the coming world if fascism takes up more and more space. So I have understood that basically I've lost my faith, like Paul, like Paul King's not in the movement, and he transferred it to some divine agency. Right. No, I will always believe in movement. Movement will always be my deity, but not a movement that has to win in order for me to believe in it, but a Got movement it. that just has to be there. Right. Just has to be there, has to provide me with a reason for why I do things that provides me with the people I do it with mm -hmm. and a community. And I know it sounds really trite, but understanding this came from a, a trite or crass. I thought about, and this is always difficult for me as a German actor, a German leftist, to reference the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising because I come from the people who did that and not from those who it was done to. But the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising was a desperate attempt by 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 um, Jewish partisans to the, the 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 Allied armies were very far away from Warsaw. It was a desperate attempt to <clears throat> survive. To basically, it was that it was a desperate attempt to survive, and they knew they were doomed. But for two to three weeks, ah, sorry, but for two to three weeks they held out, and in that created fighting militant. Jewish life in hell, because the Warsaw Ghetto was from the perspective of Jewish life was hell. So when these, if these people could create, if these comrades could create life and warmth and solidarity in the middle of hell, who are we to say that we cannot do that in what is significantly less hellish, what are significantly less hellish conditions? So I know this is a bit hard to go there, but this is what I've understood about movement. It is not the winning, but the fighting. And I know, again, that sounds trite, like, like stuff you read on, on, a, on a Hallmark postcard. But that's what gave me confidence and strength and ended my depression in Lutzrat. Right. And, I, and thank you for... Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sharing that, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a powerful personal experience, and it's also something that I think resonates with a lot of people. And I think that one of the reasons, I mean, Insofar as we track listeners to this this show, it's it's in part because I think we do things slightly differently. In that, I have always taken the view that it's important to have people look honestly at the world mm -hmm. and be able to kind of see um, what what should be what are possible responses to the real situation. And I think that one of the things that I you mentioned in the build up to the, the how you came to this position was this idea, but it's irreversible. Mm. And I think that people who maybe take a different point of view on this, and I think, or people who say, you know, that there is more than two, more than a binary kind of state of what collapse might mean in terms of the status quo being not the same, but also that it doesn't necessarily devolve into some entropic end state of just complete chaos or systems mm. collapsing. So I listen to people like Michael E. Mann, right? Who I think 
is a difficult character to get my head around because I, I think that the evidence that we see recently of, I mean, for heaven's sakes, the Copernicus stuff that came out the other day, but we, we were nearly at 1.5 this you know, less, this past year. Have you looked at the um, ocean temperatures this year? Yeah, They're yeah, amazing. I, They're like, they I, drove last year's climate weather chaos, yeah. and they are rising more quickly than anyone has seen before. Six, six standard deviations above the mean. Yeah, Precisely. absolutely. So, and I think that the question I put to a lot of people, including I snuck into the Copernicus press conference and asked Ooh. the scientists, um, like, don't you think it's time to stop telling people that 1.5 is still an achievable goal? Don't you think you should tell the policy advisors, you should tell the policy folks that like, can you just stop? Because it's not going to be helpful to have to reverse once you've, and then the answer that I get traditionally from people in public is what I got there, which is and no disrespect to the scientists who gave it. But basically, like, well, every point one degree matters, and blah 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 blah. Yada yada yada. Um, yada yada yada, and we won't even know for ten years because we need ten years of data, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, guys, come on. Now, the <laughs> only thing I've heard compelling, you know, like as an answer to that, is something that I think it's a woman called Susan Joy Hassel, who's a communicator who works a lot with Michael E. Mann. Okay. Um, and her response was this: It's like if you're in a car, and you're imagine that this stuff is you're in a car heading on a motorway and you missed your exit. Do you just keep driving into the sea or do you turn around at some point and try to get back to where you're supposed to get off? I have a car metaphor as well. Okay. Go analogy. Ahead. And I always confuse metaphors and analogies. I'm never quite sure which one is which. Okay. I think it's an analogy. Okay. Let's take yeah, look, car. Sure. Let's take a car because car is also the principal symbol of contemporary capitalism. Let's stick with the car. We are in a fucking car. Okay. That's in itself a problem, but let's say we're in a car. What we've been doing is we've been driving towards a wall. We're not talking about an exit here. That's the wrong, that is, that is, that is the misleading part of her, her, her image. We're not talking about an exit. We're driving towards a wall because, right, the stability of the global climate system and this, that all of what we call human civilization, including, I don't know, capitalism, the internet and the gay scene has, uh, whatever, cities, agriculture, that's evolved stuff. in the Holocene. 12,000 yes. years of unusual climatic stability yep. where the climate didn't deviate beyond the two degrees, sort of two degrees beyond the, the mean. Okay. So that means that it is empirically pretty clear that human civilization depends on a stable climate. Beyond the macro tipping point of the climate into an unstable system, there is no stability. There is simply no, a, a, a complex system that becomes unstable will not generate the type of weather recurring weather structures that we have that we build our whole civilization on in order basically because that is required for sedentary agriculture at a grand scale so we're not talking we're basically talking about a wall because when that ends right shit's going to happen very very quickly now what imagine driving at a wall at say 200 kph uh mph 120 mph um, well, it's roughly doing the metric thing, metric imperial thing. Okay, 120 mph, driving towards a wall. Now, slow that process down on your laptop. Just go into real, what do you call it? Um, uh, slow, um, huh? slow motion. The slow motion, sorry, I'm sorry. Go into real slow motion. Make it ultra, ultra slow. Right now, the front of the car has already hit the wall. Now, we're in the back seat. Because the more privileged you are, the further back in the car you are, right? And right now, it seems like the whole car is folding itself into that wall very, very slowly. Mm -hmm. And all the while, we're talking about, I don't know, uh, 
cleaning the back seat. Mm-hmm. Now, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about an exit. Okay. It's, 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 the thing is, there is this implied volition, this implied choice, this implied agency that we haven't demonstrated that we have over 120, 150 years. We do not have the collective agency to slow down capitalism. There will be no, because of the Federalist Society, as I talked about before, there will be no climate protection. We can also say, sure, every every one percent, every every one tenth of a degree helps, but we don't even know how to achieve one tenth of a degree less warming because so far we've been running on all the sort of the worst case possible scenarios in terms of actual emissions developments. Actual emissions development. If you add the methane stuff mm-hmm. from Haworth, who has mm-hmm. calculated based and he has been excellent on all LNG and methane related stuff, who calculates that the emissions of methane. Um, just on the on the whole product chain from frac- fracking U.S. gas uh, in Nevada or Texas and then bringing it to Germany and burning it here, actually make LNG between 24 and 200 and something percent worse than burning coal, coal right? Yeah. The non-captured methane emissions from the shale revolution are probably what has tipped us into this climate escalation collapse because, as your listeners probably know, methane is active within, sort of climate active within 12 years, CO2 within 50 years. So if you look at when the climate starts tip, the climate collapse really happens, but I believe 2018, 2019, mm-hmm. you calculate back to the beginning of the US shale revolution. Bingo. There you have your culprit. Now, while the climate movement tries to fight coal, what do the powers of the world do? They expand global LNG infrastructure to such a point that we now have a third fossil fuel lock-in. So basically we have a structural fossil fuel lock-in. We've got a Massive expansion of LNG capacity around the world. It doesn't really matter how long we burn coal, although most of the coal is still going to be burnt. So even if you can tell me that, even if I agree that every one-tenth of a degree would matter, I would tell you, yeah, dude, but there's no fucking way we're going to actually re-get the emissions reductions because that is not what we've we've been doing for the past 15 years. And I've also demonstrated the psychological mechanisms which would lead to us not doing it in the next 15 years. And if you look at the politics of all northern countries right now, show me the political party that will run on a strong green transition uh, platform, and I will show you the political party that gets pulverized. Keir Starmer has been withdrawing from Labour's green positions. Joe Biden's IRA isn't a green isn't a green transition. It's just expanding electric capitalism and also expanding everything fossil along the way, mm-hmm. right? Because the U.S. is a drill, baby, drill, and all things about all all of the above energy country, there isn't a politician in the global north who doesn't know right now that the climate agenda is a death knell for your political ambitions. So, society doesn't want climate protection. Parties will therefore not propose climate protection. Capitalism doesn't abide by climate protection, and we're seeing, if anything, a sort of a radicalization of fossilism around the 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 LNG and methane problem. So, even if it were the question of an exit before hitting the wall. I'd be like, well, sweetie, we're currently driving at 240 kph uh-huh. uh, because we're getting faster all the time. And um, even if we hit the brakes now completely, the wall is still there. Mm-hmm. And the last exits are back behind us and we're driving forward. We're not slowing down. And there's a wall. There's a wall. And we've hit that wall, in my mind. Maybe, maybe not for that, for, the, for, the, for, for Michael Mann's colleague, but... If we haven't hit the wall, how do we explain those fucking six standard deviations above the mean for ocean temperatures, which I just like just do not fit onto any graph that anybody has ever drawn about ocean temperatures? Again, you don't have to take my word for it. You just have to ask yourself, hmm, why do so this Tajimilla knows very little about tipping points. 
But what he says actually accords with what I see in the data more than what folks like Michael Mann and Stefan Ramstorff in Germany say. Why do the people who understand more about this say something that is probably stupider than what he's saying? The reason for that is, again, Verdrängung. They have staked their lives on a particular type of environmental communication, which I believe, which I believe originated in the post-Rio world, in the Rio 92 Earth Summit, where they've told us that protecting the environment is a win-win-win situation for everybody because they always knew it was going to be a hard sell. It was going to be a super hard sell because like, dudes, you have to transform your lives completely. You're going to significantly reduce your material consumption and production. And probably and you're going to have to redistribute shitloads of your wealth to the global south in order for this to work at all. Right? right. They knew there was going to be a shit sell. They told us it was going to be win, win, win and fairly easy. None of this was true. And therefore, they can now not change their communication because – and I'm going to use another personal example because I've understood a lot about this Verdrängung Society through my personal interactions – I, my father taught me to repress my homosexuality for about 20 years. He's aware of that, and yet he cannot apologize for it. It's impossible for him to acknowledge that he caused me harm. Why He's a successful lawyer. He's lived a great life. To now accept that he kind of contributed to making his, life's, his son's life really hard, much, much harder than He's incapable of that. Michael Mann, Stefan Ramstorff are now incapable of changing their ways because they have invested far too much in the old ways that have contributed to leading us where we are, which is nowhere in terms of climate protection. So they have failed and they haven't had the courage or balls or maybe sort of uh, uh, um, time because I also lost my job back then. Um, they haven't had the courage and balls to acknowledge that and face the music and the darkness. So... One of the things I wanted to ask, and I wanted to take us take us maybe back up a level here, mm -hmm. is the distinction between what you call just collapse, and yeah. uh, again, I'll be guided by you, but make sure that I understand what you mean by that, mm -hmm. and what people refer to as the degrowth movement. Right. So, and in brief, I guess my understanding of the degrowth movement is that the only just thing to do, and weirdly, you don't hear a lot of people from the global south advocating for this necessarily. Um, but often you hear people who are sitting like you, yourself and myself uh, with pale skin sitting in the global north, relatively privileged and able to say, well, guys, what we really need to do is essentially have an economic system that we abandon capitalism. But there isn't a degrowth in the world who doesn't prioritize massive redistribution to the global south and acknowledges that production capacities in the global south should still expand, just to clarify that. There isn't a degrowth in the world who is not a, a global justice type. I'm, and I'm not I'm not arguing that they're not. I'm not saying that they're, you know, I don't know, necessarily... but you started with a fairly leading, uh, which, okay, is, okay. which is fine. That's and I just fair. I tried to fair. interrupt fair. that. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. No, yeah. I'm not suggesting that, uh, that they're not motivated by some sort of uh, desire for a vision of global justice that uh, has accords with what they see as, as preferable. But how, was, how would you draw the distinction between some of the people who advocate a more... Again, we have whole publications that have been started in the last few years about degrowth and what you're talking about, how it's different. Well, first of all, while I'm a degrowther in terms of content, I'm not a deep part of the degrowth movement because there is no degrowth movement. It's a purely academic discourse that is entirely irrelevant and completely stays out of any political debate that's actually real. Like, for example, when the corona lockdown happened, and interestingly enough, the first corona lockdown is the only instance that we have 
we have not yet talked about, where policy led to a slowdown of capitalist production that was significant from a climate protection perspective because it engineered this just for a few months, for a month or two, engineered the 7% per annum locked, uh, reduction of emissions that we would need. Okay, that we haven't talked about yet. It's an interesting interesting subject. And I try to encourage the degrowth. As I said, this is the degrowth you have, not the degrowth you want, but the degrowth you have. As Marx said, hic rodos, hic salta. Basically, Here's the rose. Here you have to dance. And they were like, nah, that's not our degrowth, man. We want like degrowth by design and stuff. And like, right. and like, so this isn't our communism back like in the seventies, right? Yeah. There's, there's communists who are like, well, we're not going to talk about the Soviet Union because that's not our communism. Yeah. But it's fucking there. Right? If you're a communist, talk about it. This right. was degrowth. That was really existing degrowth. Talk about it because it is important. No degrowth as an agenda is, doesn't exist. It's just an analytical framework. Okay. The difference between my framework and theirs other than mine being a political and theirs being analytical, is that they're talking, the degrowthers are talking about basically governments individually or getting together to sort of tamp down, tamp down global capitalism, slow it down, and do a bunch of redistributive stuff and change the structure of the economic system. In my case, I believe that those things will all happen unplanned. Mm. Right? I'm in a degrowth by design. And by the way, I don't even think there's, there has to be degrowth. I'm sure capitalism can create growth out of all sorts of bullshit. And therefore, I'm actually agnostic as to whether there will be a growth or non-growth world. I believe we'll have a less growth world because reaching mm -hmm. country boundaries increases the opportunity costs of each, right. um, of, of each unit of growth, if you want to say it like that. Yeah. Okay, so in my world... I'm agnostic as to whether that will grow or not. If it doesn't grow, they'll be faster collapse because that's how capitalism collapses. If it grows, then there'll be less collapse. Okay. But there'll still be ecological collapse either way. And um, so that's the, the first. I'm not actually talking about growth. I'm talking mm -hmm. about collapse. And I'm talking about the social practices that we need to develop in order to be able to still thrive, feel joy, and thrive, live, thrive, feel, and feel joy in a world where various systems are collapsing. My agenda is a very practical one that says to movements, hey, this is what you can do in the upcoming situation, not one that just looks at, that it's not an analytical agenda, it's a strategic agenda. And degrowth is precisely the opposite of that. It's totally unstrategic. In my case, I'm saying this will be, this is and will more and more be the situation, collapse, therefore absence of certain goods and services that we consider necessary. The fascists will try to fill that hole and they will do so powerfully with a strong story, right? Clearly we know that a story like water only for whites will work among whites. It has proven that over time and time again. So the fascists will try to fill that hole. This will massively expand their power base and contribute to the likelihood that the, that the global North tips into full fascism, which will also be terribly shit for the rest of the world. I believe that the anti-fascist struggle is currently the dominant justice question for us in the North, because imagine how Northern fascist regimes will appropriate resources from the South. That won't be friendly neo-colonial or late imperial structures of buying it. They'll just go there with SEAL teams and take the stuff out if anybody mucks, if anybody mucks about, right? right? So this is the situation as it is and as it will be more and more. So my agenda differs very much from degrowth in yeah. most points that I can think of. Yeah. No, that's, that's, I think, a really clear explanation about why it's different. Um, and I was going to come back to COVID, but I, I want to park that for a second. Mm. Um, but I think that in terms of, no, actually, no, I will, let's go to COVID. Let's talk about that. Um, because there's two things that I would, I mean, suggest or ask you about, right? Yeah. One is to explain the significance of COVID and where some people have taken from that. And I think this, there's not a coincidence that 
COP26 in Glasgow had a different tenor to it. I think that there was something latent about what happened in 2019 and 2018, where you saw a collapse of effectiveness. Other people saw a rise in prominence of climate activism, people talking about it, the agenda. Um, Corporates changed their language, changed their tune about it. And then you had people, capitals rallying around, at least in public, this idea that we can change and yet survive in something like the system we have now, simply by adjusting certain levers of the system. Mm-hmm. And shouldn't we try that at least before we abandon that that path? Mm. So how does COVID fit into that story for you? And well, why is that important? The first thing to, to understand is that I consider everything that is said about the climate as completely irrelevant to the climate. Mm-hmm. I, I believe there is a full, there is a, the climate, like emissions rises are 100% climate discourse inelastic. There is So basically, yes, you see a rise in prominence of an issue and people talking about it. And I'm saying that stands in no or at worst an inverse relationship to actually doing something about it. But isn't that, I mean, isn't that time bound though? I mean, given the climate effects take more than a decade to be able to show up really in the, in the broader system, even to your point about shale fracking, well, um, the idea that, okay, but they, I'm saying, but the idea that the discourse would somehow have anything to do with an immediacy you would have to be able to see, sure, you won't be able to see it in the, in the emissions concentrations, maybe, but you'll see it in actual policy, right? What happens during those years is not a move towards more electric technology, more, more electric capitalism, and not a reduction of fossil fuels. Like what you do not see, there's no empirical connection between climate discourse and actual climate protecting policies. It just doesn't mm-hmm. exist. In fact, an escalation of climate discourse can often just be a societal, I mean, is there a relationship between talking about gun crime and gun control in the U.S.? No, there isn't. Well, I think the U.S. is a bit insane for various yes, reasons. But, so, but, I think- ah, but interesting enough, this is precisely my contention. The Verdrängungsgesellschaft is a bit, the Verdrängungs society is a bit insane. It is irrational and stupid, right? But, and so, but, okay. but, take, but, but, hold, on, but uh, hold on just a second. But, but to take your gun analogy, right, to take yeah. your gun example, other societies, right? So Dunblane in Scotland here in the U.K., mm-hmm. Um, various tragedies in Australia and New Zealand led to different policies True. that then changed the, 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 the picture. Mm, that's because there isn't the same degree of shame and guilt involved, and at the same time, not the same degree of economic concentration of power, right? Uh, politi- sorry, of concentration of political and economic power. Now, there are some issues on which countries can change, and there are some issues on which countries can't change a little bit simply. Right? Germany cannot just shut down its car sector. Mm-hmm. That is impossible for a number of reasons. The political power of the sector, the, the, the importance in taxation and jobs, etc. and so forth. Um, and for political reasons, the US can't shut down its gun sector. Right? It's too well organized. It has these crazy, this 20% insane supporters that will shoot everybody who wants to do anything about gun control. And um, so there are some issues on which political discourses can change the actual policy and others where it is much more difficult. And that is situationally specific. And my argument is that guns constitute the same source of irrationality as cars in, in the US as cars do in Germany. Um, but now, so back, that was the, you started saying, well, this is, we saw this rise in effectiveness. Okay, I actually contest that. We saw a rise in chattering about the climate, which isn't the same thing as changing the climate or climate policy. Right. Yeah. But now COVID. The reason why I think that's interesting is because in the alter globalization movement, I, we talked about points of leverage before. And one of the things that we felt 
us alter globalists was that governments were no longer able to actually influence capital. That was the whole, the whole globalization debate of the 1990s hmm. was, this, was all about what's the capacity that states, individual states still have to influence the development of capitalism, the rapacity, the speed, etc. And the general assumption was that the, that governments had given away the sort of control lever that globalization had meant that governments had given up the point where the, the, the lever with which, which, with which they can control capitalism. COVID showed that that was not the case, that there are situations now probably no, no, not replicable for political actors, but still there are situations in which governments can get together and through non-unilateral, like, not unilateral, but not global, but just kind of coalition, multilateral coalitions of actors reducing the speed of and the throughput of global capitalism. I mean, we all remember those days in the first lockdown when there were no planes in the sky. Yeah. That was pretty funky. I remember lying on Temple of Fulfillment, which is an old airfield, lying up and looking up into the sky and just not seeing a single fucking plane. It's like two hours. It's, wow. Okay, so this is the interesting point that if my contention that emissions are driven by growth is correct and... COVID shows a situation where governments, for political reasons, slowed down or actually reduced that the throughput, the growth, the, the activity in the global capitalist system. Then that suggests that there is still leverage, still or at least potential leverage. But unfortunately, that leverage can't be used because the politics of, society, of our northern societies are currently going completely against the possibility of slowing down capitalism for any reason that isn't connected to the rights and privileges of rich white male landowners or something like that. Sorry, that was a reference to the uh, farmers' protests in Germany right now. That, that, I'm sorry, that was a let, – no, let's, no, let's ignore that. Let's not open that. Pandora's I, that's, an, that's another – yeah, I think that's a conversation for a different day because exactly. I know I'm you're, sorry, you're highly involved in that. Where's my head going right now? Oh, to the farmers. Okay. Uh, but, I mean, it's, it is something that I, I think that you're, you're not far off in terms of correctly diagnosing where, where the uh, – well, kind of where things seem to be headed or could be headed. Um, I guess the question is then in terms of what to do about that. Um, and I guess then this is where it comes down to a acceptance of the idea of irreversibility. The thing about your analogy or metaphor that's nice, of course, from your point of view, is that if you're hitting a wall, that's it, there, is a, there, there is a moment where it's too late, mm. right? Exactly. Um, whereas... I guess there there are people who don't accept that contention. Mm, precisely. Um, and the reason why they don't accept that is not the data or the theory. It is the lack of emotional labor that they've done. And I was in a, I was in a room yesterday with people whom I literally I explained my concept of society to them. Yep. We talked about it for 10 minutes. Then later on, we talked about strategy. And in that strategy debate, it was really fun. They were all verdrängen. They were all like basically right. ignoring what we have agreed before that. Right. And, and I told them, I cannot change your minds right now. Because it's not about stuff that I can tell you, because you know everything I'm going to tell you. Yeah. It's that your brain doesn't choose to arrange it in a significant order that tells you what the truth is because your brain is verdrängen that, that, that awareness. And so the people who say that we still have an option are those who simply haven't done the emotional work to accept that we have missed that or that there's still an exit, that we have missed that exit and we're on a highway and on a highway you can't just turn around and there is no more exit. We've missed the last exit. And we now have to understand that we're going to live in, and now of course I have to change analogies, we're going to now, because unfortunately the car is going to sort of fold and we're probably not going to get out of the car because in that analogy, but okay, where would I, let's see, what analogy would I use now? Okay, now we have a situation 
once we have adjusted downward our expectations of future awesomeness of our lives, right, implying more material consumption, et cetera, et cetera, more certainties and so on. Once we've accepted that there'll be less material luxury, there'll be more chaos, more social contention, more polarization, more fights, more struggle. Then we're no longer in that rapidly driving car. Then we're, so to speak, in a vehicle of our own choosing in a world that is super uncertain, but one which we can now start to navigate because we have done the emotional labor to accept that this is now the situation. Right. And I get and that. To people. Okay. So I'm going to ask you one, one more thing yeah. in terms of a concept um, to get your reaction to it. Again, it's going to maybe sound trite or pop psychology or pop culture. Um, but whenever I hear, and particularly your, your version of Just Collapse and how even there's some resonances with Kings North, but in terms of this idea that, again, I don't know if you're a, a sci-fi fan, mm, right? Am. But this sounds an awful lot to me like Harry Seldon telling me about the foundation <laughs> and how we're going to shorten the dark age. Tell me why I'm wrong and tell mm. me if that's not, like, that just feels like there's just something percolating there in mm. that thought. That says, how can we actually survive as a species and actually thrive and find joy and happiness, as you say, or whatever the vision of the good is, and that we can somehow institutionalize something that even while the rest of society has said, yeah, we're off, we're, we don't believe you, we're going to go off in this direction, that there are, a, there's a vanguard of elite thinkers who can somehow preserve what's good, and <laughs> therefore, that's a, that's a ref method for salvation. Okay, first of all, you're good. That was, that was, that was well played. Um, um, no, okay. Um, Harry Seldon had a short game and a really long game. Yep. I only have a short game these days. I don't right. believe in the long game anymore. If somebody would tell me, I know what society is going to look like in 50 years or a hundred years, I'd be like, that's balderdash because N equals zero. Sorry. Balderdash is one of my favorite English words it's near, near, near Codswallop. Uh, and, and one of the, anyway, so it's basically not correct um, because N equals zero when it comes to how do uh, societies respond to tr crossing planetary boundaries. We don't know because that hasn't happened before. So I don't know what society is going to look like in 100 years. And Harry Seldon, for those who haven't read the Foundation Trilogy, claims on the basis of really high modernist, uh, high modernist okay. thinking that society is essentially a predictable body that if you were a sort of Laplace demon who knew everything had all the data and Harry Seldon, this genius does, you could accurately predict how large groups are going to move and therefore pretty accurately predict what society is going to look like in tens of thousands of years, thousands of years from his, his position. Now I do not claim that. I do not mm -hmm. claim to know what society would look like in a hundred years because yeah. I'm predicting loads and loads of chaos. Right. And I'm saying within chaos, we need to find ways to have agency to be able to do what leftist movements have always done, try and improve, well, have done at their best, try and improve the world for as many people as possible, as much as possible. And in order to be capable of, ex ex of, of exercising our historic task of, of mission mm -hmm. of making the world a better place, we need to just realistically adjust to what's coming, accept that chaos will happen, and develop strategies that work within that and do not, for example, rely on mediation from government agencies, which may not be on our side, most likely, mm -hmm. or not, not exist anymore. And this to actually understand the possibility of our own power without mediation is something that's also very challenging.
because it makes us understand, forces us to understand our relative irrelevance societally. And this is something, another thing that, again, speaks to emotional labor that must be done. Mm. No, and again, I, I don't deny the necessity and, and the, the virtue what comes out from having done that emotional labor. And I know I've taken a lot of your time, so I, I won't uh, keep you forever. But I want to just kind of close on, on, this, mm. on this idea to stick with it. And again, you found the one escape hatch in that, uh, that metaphor very quickly. So well done um, the, in terms of, of future foreknowledge. But of course, you know, Asimov is writing this in, you know, well, first of all, he needed some money and so came up with a story after reading Gibbon and the fall of the Roman Empire. And so basically he had a deadline. I, love, to get... that. I love that connection. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's what he did. And basically, he just he, he needed to get some money that day and was going to see his editor and was walking through Central Park and said, oh, what if we just did this? How do we prevent the fall of the Roman Empire or make the Dark Ages shorter? Yeah, um, but, but in the complexity of, of the uni- after it takes off and he has a whole university world he builds, um, there are different strands to the foundation. There's the second foundation. There's how it, it fits into this u- ultimate system you know, that takes him. He writes several books about this over the years, and I'm not saying there's, they're particularly there's good mule, books. There's the mule and there's mutation. Oh, it's all and uncertainty. And, 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 the li- and, uh, you know, and, and Elijah winds up being the, the puppet master behind the whole thing, not Elijah, who's we're talking about. Um, anyway, but like yeah. the, the point being that there are many different strands, right, to achieving this kind of avoiding some of the worst outcomes of the Dark Ages. That's the point of the foundation. Yes. Um, and, and actually, Selden gets it wrong at several points, it seems, and certainly various versions of it. Um, so he doesn't actually have foreknowledge. But what my question to you is, Asimov seems to hedge his bets, right? So in, in the, talking about this world that he's building, about how do you avoid the worst of the Dark Ages? How do you make them shorter as possible to avoid so, as much suffering as you can? Um, <laughs> And therefore, to some extent, that's a vision of justice, mm-hmm. if you consider that an element of that being avoidance of suffering where possible, and that we have a moral obligation in order to be able to do that. So is there an argument that you can take that point of departure that you had, where it says, right, we have this collapse that's coming, and that there's an argument for having a hedging that says, well, maybe the collapse isn't irreversible because the data doesn't show that, but evidence, the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And therefore, there could be a route through this. And so is there an argument for, again, to use a, a slightly different term, a popular front approach that says there are various strands, all of whom have certain common goals and some, all of whom are opposed to the, the fascism that we can, we can see. Um, all of them see that as a road to absolute hell. And that therefore there are various strands that say we can work in concert without being absolutely agreeing on every bit of that. Sure. Two problems. The first one is that I believe I've come more and more to believe that this is our version of the um, sort of rules of Hegel's rules of reason or of the invisible hand of the market. We just say that, okay, if everybody in the movement just does what they feel like, mm. we're probably going to get a good outcome because movements are magical and da 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 da. I, however, as a strategist, have come to take a rather more economistic approach to this. I believe that are good and bad investments. We have limited resources. Social movements are actually defined. One of the elements that define them are that they are resource-poor actors. Otherwise, we'd build other types of institutions. So we are resource-poor actors who once again have, have to achieve significant effects with limited resources in, in short periods of time. Therefore, there are bad investments. That is to say, if I keep, say, if, if Fridays for Future, which has the capacity to still mobilize, say about 100,000 people in Germany, just goes on and on, 
using all their resources, which are significant, to organize irrelevant climate strikes, those resources will be lost to activities where they can have more effective returns, where they have greater returns. So sure, we can say, all right, everybody just keep on doing what you're doing. It's fine. We'll finally, we'll beat the fashion one way or another. Like, no, that is insufficient. We have made too many wrong calls with our limited resources. They have meant that we have not been able to impact the situation to the same degree that we wanted to. And I am calling every activist upon every activist to reevaluate their investments of time, of energy, of money, of affect, whatever. Because if you're investing it wrong, you might as well just not do it. I always feel like I could have much more fun just working a regular political job, uh, not going to blockade shit on the weekends, but fuck around in Berlin every weekend because it's really easy and fun to do that. And I could have a much better life if I weren't doing this um, and focusing on this. But I believe that sort of basically I could have let me start that point again it's just that I hate inefficient activism I despise it I find it not just it's a sort of it gives you the possibility to be a good activist but you don't have to actually measure the effectiveness of what you're doing it's just like you go to a demo once a week and then you feel like you're doing the right thing and that's fine like no, that's not fine. Like, I have a friend who lives in a suburb of Stockholm in Sweden um, where there's crazy amounts of gun crime. I know that doesn't seem reasonable, but like Sweden is seeing a massive epidemic of gun crime. People are being shot. Like 13-year-old drug couriers are being sh found shot, are found dead, found in a forest, shot dead in the head, executed. 13-year-olds, right? This friend of mine, um, and Sweden is also sort of has gone through years of neoliberal cutbacks. Health services are no longer as good as they used to be. He was sitting in his favorite pizzeria. Outside of the window of the pizzeria, a guy gets shot. My friend Pear rushes out. He's a very helpful, he's a great man. Uh, he tries to save this guy's life. He doesn't have the skills. The guy bleeds to death like in front of him. And Pear doesn't respond to this by going to a demo saying we need more healthcare and please invest more. He, or, he learns how to treat gunshot wounds and now teaches free workshops where he teaches kids in the neighborhoods in Stockholm where that are affected by this gun crisis, by this gun uh, violence crisis, how to treat gunshot wounds so their friends don't die when they get shot. Mm. Now, that, for me, is an efficient investment of his time. That is real just collapse politics, right? That says, okay, people are going to get shot here. We're not going to expect the, secure, the, the rescue services to be there on time because they take 10 to 15 minutes and somebody can bleed out in two to five minutes after being a gunshot wound. So this... That for me is an obligation that we have. We need to prepare for situations like that and not keep keep going to the same irrelevant demonstrations that just make us feel better but don't actually improve things for anybody. Because that, that was the point of my, I could have more fun in Berlin. Then I might as well just go around and get fucked through all of Berlin because that to me then seems like a more efficient use of my time. Right. Okay. Um, well, final point. I mean, I, I, and before I ask you for your inspirations, things that have kind of get, you've come across you that, that have shaped your point of view. Um, but, I was at a kind of climate tech conference back in, I want to say October now um, of last year where someone from XR decided to kind of take to the stage yeah. um, and disrupt the the thing. And I think what was striking to me and I think was quite surprising for the people who organized it um, was the idea that like, if you're in the climate tech, I don't want to call it a movement, but certainly there are movement characteristics. Yeah. There are characteristics of that you have certain 
beliefs about the possibility of positive change. The technology can help enable that. You can use capital. To be able to... Maybe. Sure. But that people are used to seeing themselves as the good guys. And I guess what I'm asking is on this popular front notion of whether or not you see people who are working in technology towards climate solutions as being part of the problem, implacably part of the problem, or if you say that they might be complementary to some of the things that you're doing. I, I don't believe that practices have a meaning in and of themselves without understanding what they're articulated to. Now, for example, um, I'm, I have found climate tech folks to be on average rather magical thinking and rainbow unicorn piss types to some degree. Uh, rainbow unicorn piss being the magical fuel that will drive all of green industrialization. Uh, but, for example, I am obsessed with the idea, again, of, 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 of what, how do we respond to collapse? Now, heat, Berlin is going to be a massively heat-stressed city. I, my flat's on the fourth floor. I've got Western windows. In the afternoon, my living room can heat up to 47 degrees. It's really fun. Um, and I am convinced that we will need heat shelters for poor people, for particularly my, for, for, for people who don't have... Uh, fixed abode and that sort of thing. What does such a heat shelter look like? Now, even if I could say I have a location to put it, I don't know what how to organize a heat shelter. I, like, just, right. just, just technically, right? Well, what 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 kind of materials do I use? How what how do I best? Uh, let's say I don't have electricity for uh, for uh, for large scale electricity for 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 um, ACs, right? What else yeah. do I do? I have no idea, but I know that folks in the climate tech world. Exactly. And that's now, again, like these technologies can be part of electric capitalist industrialization strategies, in which case they are part of the problem, or they can be part of uh, targeted solutions. Sounds again like, so, but like targeted, adaptation. Sorry? Adaptation. Adaptation, precisely. Yes, yes, yes. In cities, in localities to a climate stressed world. And that mm. I would say would be a very reasonable thing to do. Okay. Well, look, I think this has been an absolutely fascinating discussion. It definitely lived up to my expectation, Tajio. So thank Ooh, you so much for taking I, the time. I, I, I agree. It's been really, you've, you've asked some really pointed questions and, 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 and I've, I've well, That's very generous of you. I'm, I'm sure that, uh, anyway, but look, before I let you go, we ask everybody who comes onto the show um, to offer to the audience some things that have inspired them, have given them just to help shape their worldview. So they can be books, they can be art installations, they could be movies, they could be whatever. Um, and I, as I asked you this in the email, so I don't know if you've had time to think about it, but yeah, three I, things that come to mind that help to shape you that our listeners and, and, and viewers might find interesting. I, I have I've one. The things, the stuff I thought ended up thinking about was mostly events or places I'd gone to, experiences I've had. I could also talk about books like Marx, Gramsci and Deleuze and Guattari. But how about I do this because I'm a movement romantic. I will do precisely this. I will talk about movement events that have shaped me. I will pick first the... Uh, anti-WTO protests in Seattle. The first time when I understood that a few thousand people getting together to blockade some shit can actually move history forward. There was this notion that we had ended the end of history by that Fukuyama had 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 uh, had pronounced. And to that Seattle, like getting together with people trying to blockade a summit can somehow change the world because people suddenly see that other worlds are possible. That was the slogan. Um, that was shouted there, or that was associated with that moment later on. Yep. Um, a second moment, be another movement moment, was Endegelende. The first time we had organized those uh, 
blockades of, of coal pits in Germany. And when we did the first action, we thought we were going to fail. And I remember sort of the day of the action, we ran through all these different police lines, overcame these various challenges. And then there was this one last line of police and, and, and workers and trucks that was blocking us from the digger. And for a moment, I thought, no, we've lost again. And then I realized that we hadn't lost, that we had actually, that every digger was shut down, that all the action fingers had reached their targets and we had owned, we were owning the pit. I remember this moment, and I say this as somebody who really enjoys being high on a party dance floor and just, I remember this moment of like touching the battery of pure life. Mm. And just like, that was like just charging myself in this, in this amazing energy. And, and yeah, it was the best high ever. And then I will, I will reference, I already talked about Lützerath and how I got out of my depression there. So I mentioned the third one I was traveling to Sweden to study just collapse politics or prepping together as they call it there. Because I was so fucking hopeless and things were so dark because things in Germany are really dark right now as they are in many countries. But in Sweden, in a way, they already have that right-wing coalition tolerated by a Nazi party. They, they already have a bunch of that shit. Yeah. But going there to talk to people who have adjusted to that new situation, who still could live decent, good lives as visible leftist organizers or, or visible queers with migration backgrounds in Sweden and said, sure, the shit has happened. The fascists are in power or super close to power. And you know what? We're still living. We're still fighting. We're still enjoying our lives. This sounds again a bit trite, but to actually see that, look, once you've accepted it in Sweden, you can talk to almost everybody about collapse. It's a long story again. But like realizing that adjusting to the possibility and reality of collapse doesn't mean adjusting to a shit life. It just means adjusting your expectations of how reality is going to look. But you can still do what you want and live as you want. You just need to understand that it'll be in a bit of a darker world. So you have to understand that you become more important as a source of light. Well, I think that's a great place to, and somewhat surprisingly positive place to end. Um, so Tajio, thank you so much, Dr. Mueller, for your time. Really enjoyed this chat. Hope we can do it again sometime. Well, I. Thank you so much. Um, I hope you, um, get through those because I really want to hear this uh, online. No, because I really enjoyed this conversation. I really, and, 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 and I hope that we'll continue definitely. So let's, let's agree to meet again in, 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 how about we meet a year from now and see well, how it's gone. Let's do, let's do that. Let's do that. Let's put a date in the, the diary for a year from now. And, uh, if not, um, I can't, I can't join you for all the fun in Berlin. It's not my lifestyle, <laughs> but, uh, some of it, I'd love to be able to meet up, have a, uh, let's just say have an adult beverage either there or here on this side of the water and, uh, love to do that sometime soon. It is a deal. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so, I just put this down for the 12th of January next year and um, hope we'll see each other before that. Thanks for listening to Wicked Problems. And if you like this conversation, please share it and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It really helps people find the show. You can subscribe to our newsletter at news.wickedproblems.uk where you can also find more episodes with Richard Elvin and Claire Brady and all our show notes. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.